0: Welcome to the Ancestral Kitchen Podcast with Allison, a European town dweller in Central Italy and Andrea living on a newly created family farm in Northwest Washington State, USA. Pull up a chair at the table and join us as we talk about eating, cooking, and living with ancient ancestral food wisdom in a modern world kitchen. Hello, Alison. How are you doing? Super awesome. A little sore and sunburned from picking peppers and tomatoes yesterday, but <laughs> other than that. Sounds fun. Sounds
1: fun. We've got a guest today. So before I carry on, I want to say a quick hello to Aaron, our guest. Mm. Hi, Aaron.
2: Hello. How are you guys doing? doing really,
1: really awesome. good. Yeah. And I want to say hello to everyone who's listening. And a special hello to our Patreons, who, at the time of me sitting here recording this with Andrew and Aaron, we have seven. Which Ah. is super exciting for us both. And Aaron, who you're going to hear in a moment, is one of them. But we also have um, another six. We have Kara, and is it Charis or Karis?
0: Karis, Karis, yep.
1: Ira, who came onto the cook-up last week live, Dawn, Lisa and Annette. So thank you all for keeping us going. Um, as I just mentioned, we put a live cook-up on the feed last week and we actually did it live. We have one Patreon there asking us questions. So mm-hmm. that's on the feed now along with lots of other good stuff. If you love what we're doing and you're interested, you can go to Patreon.com. Forward slash ancestral kitchen podcast. And obviously, if you can't be a Patreon but you love what we're doing, you can tell us always and you can leave us a review. There are instructions in the show notes for how to do that on Apple Podcasts. So now that's um nicely said thank you to. I want to move on to today's guest. Andrew and I are delighted to have the chef teacher and entrepreneur Aaron Goldstein with us today and I think I connected with Aaron I think it was earlier in the year wasn't it Aaron was it still this year time goes so quickly
2: you know the last couple of years are a blur so <laughs> <laughs> was, exactly. I think it was this year or last I'm not sure
1: yeah the, the reason um we like Aaron so much is because firstly he's he's so deep and he feels so strongly about what he's doing and the world and food, but at the same time he's very much about the basics, he's real and he's practical, he's about giving us skills in the kitchen but also about teaching us to listen to our body and listen to nature, um, Mm. to connect and to learn through connection. I think it's probably a good idea, um, Aaron, to turn over to you to explain a little bit more about what you do to everyone. And then after that, to tell us why you do what you do.
2: Mm. Um, thank you so much, Allison. Before I start, I just want to say I want to bottle up your voice. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> it's like the perfect thank radio you. voice. I just want to listen to it before I go to bed.
0: I keep telling her that. I keep saying that. She's like, whatever. <laughs>
2: um, but thank you for, well, thank you for having me both, um, you and Andrea. And I'm super excited to dive into all things food and life um, today. So the answer to what I'm doing and, and why is a lengthy one. So I hope we have a, a few hours, um, but cut, <laughs> cut me off when it's time to um, rein me back in. But I'll quickly start Um Right now I'm building a, a cooking show of sorts with my son. Uh, my son, Raphael, we call him Rafa, who is uh, recently turned four years old. Uh, he and I have spent so much of the past four years, even in his infancy in the kitchen together, which as you know, is so important to me. And you know, something hit me last year as I was trying to figure out what my role in the universe should be. I, I've been teaching for a very long time and uh, you know, most of my career has been in restaurant kitchens and weaved into that has, has been education so much. Uh, but something hit me last year when we were on our, our third move, our third country uh, in this past year and a half and Rafa and I were making another meal in the kitchen and I thought maybe, maybe I should just start recording us together and see if we can inspire families to get in the kitchen more, to normalize the act of cooking more in their own kitchens, not just for themselves, for adults, but to do so in a way that normalizes getting the children involved in the process. And you know, so much of what I believe comes from that idea of normalizing real food Um, more so than feeling like we need to restrict and strip away and and take away what is not serving us, but simply by surrounding ourselves by real ingredients without labels and without uh, things we don't understand and just getting started in the kitchen. So that's why I'm building this show because I'm bringing my expertise through 15 years in the restaurant world With the expertise of being a dad of a now four-year-old and learning all that kind of messy stuff that comes with bringing a child into the world and trying to understand what's best for them, you know, what to feed them and all the different worries that come up uh, around um, worrying that they aren't eating the right things or enough of one thing. They're not getting enough vegetables or this or that, right? All that noise. And you know, the the deeper that I go into this work and, and as I'm kind of knee deep into this project of launching this show, which is going to be built within a course, I really see so much simplicity and so much opportunity for us to just kind of strip away all the noise and all of the complication and just approach things very simply. So that is, that is the what, um, as uh, the what I'm bringing to the world. And and the why, and feel free to you know, ask me questions as I go, but the why comes from kind of deep inside my own childhood and my own journey of navigating my relationship with food over the years. Um, and without, without going too poetic with my whole entire life, um, but I will just kind of try to frame it for you easily that I grew up in, in central Massachusetts um, to a Jewish family with a mom that had Irish Catholic roots um, in, a, in a family that just revered food. We loved food. It was such a big part of our, our daily and weekly and seasonal rituals, right? And so much of it was so good and so delicious. And I don't want to shed you know, a negative light on all of it, but I will say that I was also a child in the 80s and 90s in America, and I normalized, I was part of a world that normalized Fruity Pebbles, you know, for breakfast and Pop-Tarts running out uh, the door to high school and cheap restaurant pizza every day in my middle school cafeteria and all of that, that I realized at a, at a, a point in probably my, you know, pre-adolescence that that food in part was holding me back in a way. And I was a really, really overweight kid, especially around those, you know, adolescent years and into those really awkward growth years as a kid. And I wasn't comfortable in my body. And it wasn't just, you know, I have a big belly or I have have what is kind of described as like man boobs. And I had all these awkward moments as a kid, not wanting to like take my shirt off you know, at shirts and skins basketball or feeling just really, really scared to take my shirt off at like a pool party. Right. And all those just like messy things as a kid, which I know are are normal for all of us, regardless of whether or not we're overweight or not, or, or what is defined as overweight. But, beyond the physical, I knew I didn't feel good. And it kind of began my journey of just trying to kind of scratch away and try to learn more. And, and when it started, it started with, you know, reading men's health and being told that fat was bad. And so I started like, you know, eating just plain pasta with tomato sauce and thinking that was a healthy decision, you know, and fast forward, you know, to the last, 20 years, I've you know, been riding all those different waves of information and, and a lot of it being utter nonsense um, and diving deeper and deeper and learning to just start to ignore so much of the noise and start to look within to my own, my own body and start to understand or try to understand intuitively what is it that my body thrives on. And then start to kind of translate that trust and that openness to my relationship with my son, or I should say, I should say ours, because my wife and I are, are trying to navigate that as well. And I think that's probably a good, a good place to kind of stop it and continue the conversation. And we can maybe circle back and into different things about my past that I think have shaped me.
1: I think um, I made lots of notes as you were talking, but I think the idea of, there's so many um, diet fads and the the word you used is nonsense, kind of um, on the other end of the scale to the simplicity that you're trying to put across is a journey that um, as food consumers, um, a lot of us who are um, eating ancestrally have taken Because there is so much out there telling us, screaming at us to eat this way, eat that way, eat this Mm -hmm. way, whether it's people who want to um, sell their Pop-Tart products or people who are saying that the the best way to eat is this diet, which is just cabbage and grapefruits. Mm. And to be able to gift a child with a calm sense of simplicity around food and like you said earlier, real food, rather than, than give them that, so then later, when they're exposed to all the noise that's out there, all the nonsense that's out there, they've got those firm roots. I, I really resonate with um, you expressing that as a, you know, a, a reason behind you wanting to share what you learn and the skills that you have through mm. this this TV show. Andrea, mm. what, what's in your head, listening
0: Mm. to Aaron? I love everything that's happening right now. (laughs) I think um, everybody should go to Aaron's Instagram and watch, go to hit, click his kids kids eating this, kids eating that. Those are my favorite. (laughs) I love those videos. (laughs) My kids love them. They're like, what's he doing?
2: (laughs) That's awesome.
1: (laughs) That simplicity just in in the video itself, you know, Mm. a kid eating a pomegranate. Now, the fact that these pomegranates have seeds in, and most people don't know how to get them out, just to show that is simplicity in itself. Yeah. But it's a real food. You know, it's something that grows on a tree just outside my garden, and yeah. um, it's so important.
2: Can I tell you the inspiration for that little series? Yes, it's kind yes. of it's kind of fun. So, as you guys know, I think last last fall I had the honor of working on this project, it was called, it is called the Village Forest School in Piemonte. And we were about uh, kind of halfway between Turin and Milan in the Montferrato region. And we were on this beautiful biodynamic winery and the school uh, is, is, was set, you know, in these rolling hills of, of vineyard vineyards. And we had these yurts uh, for the kids and they were outside during the day and doing nature walks. And I was tasked with, cooking for these uh, 20 plus kids and and the staff. And so, you know, the approach, the shared approach was that we were gonna cook just real amazing food that we were gonna source organically, that we're gonna source meat that was pasture raised, that was great, that was raised with love. And that we were gonna just, you know, break down all the barriers uh, that we think we have as to what kids should be eating or what they might um, be game for eating. And we were working with this amazing, amazing butcher, uh, Eduardo, we called him Edo. Um, and every Friday he would make this incredible tripe um, from veal that he would slaughter himself weekly. And it was unbleached, which was a dream for me. I'm not sure I had ever actually had a tripe that wasn't bleached. And he would basically just boil it and set it in its own uh, gelatin and serve it as a cold terrine. And the traditional way of, of serving it was just with some sea salt and black pepper and olive oil. Mm. And I would serve this on Fridays as just like a merienda, like a like a snack. And the kids would just eat it. Like it's just like uh-huh. there's there's cold tripe, and let's just dive in there. And I remember, you know, one one child being squeamish uh, next to another. Well, actually, we're just surrounded by a whole the whole table of people, uh, of kids, you know, reaching in with their toothpicks and and diving in. And there actually was one one kid in particular that was very kind of white pasta and white rice, um, as warned by his parents that he really just doesn't eat much. And slowly each day, just being surrounded by his peers that normalized eating all these different foods. And we would serve all different kinds of things. Sometimes just we would like weekly just make a chicken soup with the whole head and feet with this amazing pastured chicken and, um, and the tripe as just an example. And slowly, and slowly, he would just start eating. And he would just start eating almost everything all of a sudden. And I, I had this idea, if I can just provide parents with this little bit of what I call nourishing screen time that gives them just another tool in the toolbox to say, hey, look what this kid's eating. Not in a way of kind of, you know, you should be eating this because he or she is. But that look like this is an option, and it's kind of this gentle, I think, positive—I don't want to call it peer pressure, but um, I suppose support um, that, that parents can have. And I think if a child can can be around that and be surrounded by people that are that have normalized eating really nourishing food, then that's that's really worth it to me, and that's what I wanted to provide. And, and as we know, conversely, if we're surrounded by people in our community or in our personal lives that are that are doing the opposite and that are eating food that really doesn't serve us. And that of course has a negative impact on a community level as well. So that's kind of the impetus for, for that piece of it. And I suppose that spans out to what I'm trying to build on a macro level uh, to provide families with this really, really nourishing piece of not just inspiring content, but, um, but, but actual instruction that they can use as action items to just immediately get in their own kitchens.
1: So that's what the show's going to be. Is it, is it going to yeah. be presenting recipes or is it going to be presenting the foodstuffs? How, how are you planning yeah. to do that?
2: So you can think of it as uh, basically walking through the steps of uh, kind of a mini culinary school. And so this first series that I've just uh, wrapped up filming is five episodes. And this is essentially like, you know, week one of, of walking into culinary school or walking into the kitchen as your first, you know, your first job and literally just learning the basics of safety and how to hold a knife and how to cut properly. I, I shouldn't say properly, but safely and efficiently. And then just working through some culinary basics. And so we start with knife skills and that safety. And of course we, we apply it to kind of working with kids. But I should say that even if you don't have kids, this is really, it's the same education that I was getting as, as a kid in culinary school. And then I just walk through and layer on. So we get it, we expand on knife skills, we get into egg cookery, we get into kind of building off of the knife skills by you know, making a perfect meatball, for example, and, and meat cookery, and then and on it goes. And so my vision uh, is to start with this as the first course, as kind of a beginner's course slash a family kind of reset. And then you'll have the opportunity to grow with me as we continue to film this show. And it kind of dives into deeper uh, themes uh, because it's endless. We could do this forever and never stop cooking.
1: Yeah, that's true. That's true. Andrea, how do you find with, with your three? Do you um, have any experience of them not wanting to eat things or do they just eat everything? That you can
0: eat? Yeah, they'll, they'll randomly decide not to eat things and it doesn't seem to be um consistent with like sometimes i think what this is a, like a delicious treat like a dessert that i made eh we're not interested and then randomly another one will be so um we try to have them at least try it um but it doesn't seem to be related to like quote weird foods necessarily like mm-hmm. it's more if i get in a rut preparing oatmeal the same way every day and then i make it different a different day then they're like what is this <laughs> what have you done to us <laughs> how dare you <laughs> heretic
1: interesting have you showed them any of the videos any of Aaron's videos
0: about- um they've seen his they watch his Instagram with me so yeah they they love seeing it um and Aaron I was going to tell you when when you talked about the normalizing these kind of healthy behaviors that's what I call Whenever I hear something like that, I call it pure pressure.
2: (laughs) Mm, I love it. I love it. I'm going to take that if that's okay.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely.
1: (laughs) It's so powerful. It feels to me so powerful. You know, your example of the school in Piedmont that someone could come and have that experience and then they're completely changed. Their life is completely changed because now it's okay for them to eat tripe. And from then it's obviously okay for them to eat other offal, and that door might have come completely shut for the rest of their life if they'd not had yeah. that experience. And yeah, so, yeah. the opportunity to change at the age of, you know, my son's seven to change children's eating habits for life by opening doors instead of keeping them shut is absolutely astounding. The power.
2: Yeah, yeah. And and can I say that you know, I suppose that if for anyone listening that might feel. Well, at all different kinds of levels in this, and I might feel like, oh, that's easy. You're a chef; you know how to make it so tasty, or whatever. So much of this is about not not forcing the issue and just having the foods around. And this is this is an approach that my wife and I are taking and have been taking with our son. That you know, we stop saying, "Don't you want to try this?" or "Don't," or, or like, "Won't you have some of this?" You know, or eat some of this. You know, we we'd be so tied wrapped up into this, like, eat your vegetables, or eat, eat this, that. And, and, you know, what is that teaching our kids in terms of trusting their own intuition and trusting their own bodies? And that's something that I think about so much, um, as I struggled navigating that myself, right? So what I want to just do is, is kind of provide as much kind of abundance of real food and, and have fun with the variety of those things, and personally have fun with the cooking process, which is, just what I do anyways, and then letting him just express his own curiosity and, and, and having us trust, you know, his body's gotta be telling him something, right? If his body is saying, I don't want that piece of meat or I don't want that vegetable or whatever it is, can we, can we trust that, right? And so often, you know, that same item kind of circles back around as, as I'm sure you guys experience and then they want it you know and then the next week maybe they don't and that's all okay you know if you kind of zoom out and look at the course of a few days or a week as long as you're getting just real good food in your daily rhythms they're gonna get it in there you know so talk that's to us, us a little bit, little bit
1: um about instinct i just want to dig into it a little bit more because i know that andrew and i've talked about this before but you know, if you're lacking in nutrients in your system, then your body might be screaming out for something. And you think that thing is chocolate, or you think that thing is um, ice cream, because you are lacking. And I wonder your take on how you slowly are able to tease out what instinct is the right instinct, if there is such Mm. a thing as the right instincts and what one's the wrong one and whether we need to actually make the mistakes and go with our instincts anyway in order to traverse that kind of journey and get to where we can trust our instincts. What's your, what's your take on that? I'd love to hear it.
2: Well, I think that's, that's different for all of us probably. And it's a layered loaded question that, I think we can attack in different ways. The first thing that I've learned to do personally over the years is if I'm feeling an intense craving, the first thing I do is, is look to drink some water and hydrate because it's very well that I, I just, I'm just thirsty. Right. The other thing that I, that I like to do is try to create space and just change the environment. It's like if I just walk out of the room and kind of change, uh, you know, the space, does it just kind of fade and go away? And, and very often we're talking about that urge to like, grab a piece of chocolate or grab a piece of cookie or grab a cookie or whatever it might be. Um, but then you can get, of course, more granular. And, and that same, the same questions arise, okay, what am I going to cook now for lunch for myself? What, what does my body really want? Right. Um, and I think that part's harder, you know, and people have different approaches, even down to like holding a piece of food in their hand and trying to kind of sense the energy, right. That, that people even approach it on that kind of level. But zooming out, my main belief is that if we're filling our cupboards and our fridges and our pantries with only really good food, we don't have to worry about that so much, right? Like as a kid, I remember binge eating on, remember those rolls of uh, Chips Ahoy cookies? They would come in like two, actually maybe Allison, you didn't have these, but Andrea, I remember like the Chips Ahoy? They would come in two stacks of like, like there was two plastic stacks and I remember eating like a whole stack of them, right? They were just around or Oreos or soda. So if, those, if that stuff's around, you know, we're going to get those cues in our environment. Because if we open the fridge, which I used to habitually do, which I still do, we walk in the house and you open the fridge. If it's there, it's like, great, sugar, I'm going to eat it. Or just that, whatever it is, I'm going to eat it. And that's what I, I think is so powerful about just creating the environment that sets you up for success. And sometimes that makes, that, that makes for what feels like hard decisions at the beginning, right? To where, well, what do you mean I'm not going to buy ice cream? I love ice cream, you know, in my, in my home fridge. And it's come to a point slowly over the years where I've just placed much more value on how I feel in my body, and I realized my own tendencies and if, if I have like delicious, you know, bucket of ginger snaps that I used to get at Trader Joe's <laughs> around, like they're so good. They're crunchy and they're a little sweet and they're really gingery. Like if they're around, I'm going to I'm going to eat them. So. I think if I answer that question right or well, Allison, I think a big part of that is one, looking at your environment and controlling that environment, not like in a controlling way, but being the master of it and being like, okay, I'm just going to fill it with good food. And that means, that doesn't mean sacrifice. It means it's awesome food. It's delicious. And it's food that is going to give you life. And (laughs) yeah. And then the other thing is even those foods, because like we always have chocolate in our house, we love chocolate and it's, it's sweetened with coconut sugar. It's like, but I could still eat a couple and, and, you know, the dose makes the poison regardless. Like, and so, so it's the environment, but then also creating the space. And sometimes that little step out and just getting some air or just changing what you're doing, just getting out of the kitchen and becoming preoccupied with something else. Sometimes that one shift of 30 seconds makes all the difference. Easier said than done. That comes across
1: really, that comes across really clearly in what you share, you know, the fact that you use the word breathe a lot I've noticed through your post that to actually have a moment of space where you you connect and take a break or come back it it enables you to get beyond that noise back
2: yeah. to what's real yeah sure. and let me just um, add before I, yeah, sorry um, before I before we close that out that that is a process of of, of, of kind of finding that ability to tune in and with it can come messy times and confusing times and, and friction, right? To where we're, where we're potentially, and I've gone through this myself, we're overthinking all the decisions, right? Is this good for me? Is this too much? And, and that's where that breath comes in. And it's okay also to just make the conscious decision to where like, you know your body is gonna just enjoy the hell out of that really big piece of chocolate, right? And then just eat it slowly and enjoy it. And it's okay too if sometimes you observe, oh, that was a little bit too much. And then you just use that as a bit of information for the next time and just kind of store it away and let it all just be part of the learning process. Yeah,
1: it's a slow healing process, I agree. I, I have experienced the same in my life. Mm-hmm. I wanted to, to zoom out a bit more and, you know, thinking about how you you share the skills, you share the connection, you share the food, you share the kind of um, nature as well. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about um, how you feel we're actually going to make the changes to our kids' lives, to the way we eat, to the way the world eats. And how you see your role as part of that. I know it's a huge topic, but it's clear from hearing you talk and looking at what you share on social media and in your videos, that you want the world to be different. You know, you're not just working in your own kitchen. And I'd like to hear your perspective on, are you optimistic about it? And how do you think we're actually going to make the change that we all want to see?
2: Ah. So let me, let me start, I like to tell stories and this one I, I think will kind of set us up because I, I can get very caught up in the global macro problems or, you know, that, that I see. And, and just to kind of set the background, I'll, I'll use an example of this story that really has marked me. I, was, I had this really cool opportunity to work in China for a few months I was I was on the this island called Hainan on the, off the southern coast, and I was there to open this Italian restaurant on the beach that this Italian entrepreneur uh, had opened, and he, he was reopening it, kind of renovating. Long story short, one day we were in town uh, in, in the main city, Sanya, that we were near, and my friend took, a, took me to this incredible food market, right? You, you kind of walked in, it was almost like this alleyway. And there was like every example of regional Chinese cuisine that was just, it was so beautiful. And it was a feast for every sense in my body. And we would go there actually multiple times and I would go and have dumplings or soup and all, all kinds of a myriad of different foods. But the first time that I went there, I, I was struck by it. it was lunchtime. And I'm like, why isn't it that busy? And we had lunch. And I remember we walked out of the other side of this kind of alleyway. And I looked up and there was this three-story KFC with a line out the door. Wow. And my heart just like sunk. I'm like, we're here in this incredible place with such rich culinary heritage with every opportunity in the world to eat the most nourishing food and the most delicious food. And here comes, you know, KFC looking, you know, to expand their market share market share. Mm. And this is not to speak poorly. This isn't to, I suppose, shame these companies because I do hope that they're going to be, part of, they're going to need to be, I think, hopefully they will be part of a solution for us moving forward. But what I saw there was so devastating, but at the same time, I also saw this, this like really interesting opportunity to where right there, right next to each other was an opportunity to make a value shift. Right. And on the one hand, there's a value of look at all this beautiful food that is so delicious, that is so rich in history, that has so many stories so many human stories attached to it right so much opportunity not to just heal us and have delicious food and create new memories and to also heal our environment to grow food in a deliberate way that we can rebuild ecosystems and then on the other hand there's this you know this chain that has this highly addictive and i suppose on some level you could say also delicious food that also has you know built supply chains that that I suppose you could call um, an opportunity in a way, right? Mm -hmm. How can we start to shift back to, and I suppose I'm projecting my own beliefs, you know, by doing this, but how can we shift back to the beauty of what we already had and that we knew intuitively was right, right? We never even questioned it because it was just so damn good and so part of, and so weaved into the fabric of everyday life you know, that incredible cuisine, those incredible cuisines. And that example, I think, exists in almost every nook and cranny of the whole entire world, except for the fact that in so many places, we don't, you know, so many of us are not fortunate enough to have that market, right? And have all that availability of amazing foods. As we know, you know, in massive swaths of the United States, you just don't even have access to fresh raw ingredients for for miles, right? Now that's the big macro picture that I can get so wrapped up in. Right. But the reason why I think it's, it's pertinent to us talking about is that a lot of us do have the opportunity to make that decision. Okay. And again, this is, and what I'm about to say is not about shaming anyone for making their decisions because I was, I was there not too long ago, you know, eating late night Wendy's or whatever, whatever it was, um, and enjoying it at that time years back but i made the decision where it wasn't just that i didn't want to eat mcdonald's because it wasn't good for my body but it started to become a moral decision that i knew by by putting my dollars in that place that i was supporting someone else's disease and the same goes for buying a coke or a pepsi or a nestle product and i really see that as you know i think a lot of people might see that as a hard pill to swallow but On a level, you have to acknowledge that that is a reality, right? These foods, they cause disease. Like if you drink Coca-Cola or Diet Coke, it is disease-causing, right? So it's harming someone else. And this is where, you know, so many people talk about this idea of voting with our dollars. And I used to think of it only in the sense of whatever I'm voting for, you know, I'm voting for. So if I'm spending money on my organic veggies, or my, my local pasture-raised food, I'm supporting that system, right? I didn't really think of so much as the other people that are really making a strong vote when they're going to a subway or going to a KFC to perpetuate that system, right? And you are voting no matter what. You know, you're voting no matter what. And are we, you know, are we voting for a system that is really letting us down? It's letting us down, not just our individual health, our community health, and at the health of our environment, can we have the courage to say, you know what, I am gonna make that decision. You know, there's been so much divisive talk about a completely other, you know, another issue entirely this last year and a half. Are Are we considering the food choices we're making as impacting the whole? And I really believe that there's immense power if we can start to do this and talk about it with an open heart and in a loving way without shaming each other, and start to build these conversations block by block and community by community and let them spread out to you know different projects that we can act you know there's i went to culinary school in montpelier vermont and montpelier decided that they weren't going to allow a mcdonald's you know in their town that that means something wow. for the the health of that wow. you know of that town so i know that that was a long-winded answer And I don't even remember where we started, but um, that's okay. So that's the macro and then the little decisions that we can make on, on, on a small individual level. And we can dive deeper, but let me just refresh and give it back to you.
1: I think that um, conversations is kind of really important in that. And the fact you said um, we have them block by block and then community by community that we start a conversation as an individual with someone else. And then that conversation rippling out to another person, to a community, to a to a group, to a government, to a town council. That's how. That's one way that we can make change. And perhaps as individuals, you know, in our own homes and our own four walls, who aren't people in power necessarily. That's that's the way that we will change.
2: Yeah, yeah, it it has to be that way, and. Yeah, you know, we look at, you You see so many, not to speak in like it's all dark and it's all gloomy because look mm. at the trends that we're seeing. So many people are interested in organic because people are bringing up the concerns that they have about the system that we know is harming us, right? And you're so right. And it, it, it does need to kind of infiltrate the, uh, it needs to infiltrate politics because as we know, the, 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 the cheap food that is, is harming us is subsidized and it's cheap for a reason because the government is subsidizing it and imagine if that were flipped you know like imagine if the government resource if so many taxpayer resources were going towards regenerative farms and regenerative ag and and that's my that's
1: my dream
2: right Mm -hmm. and actually you know and taking away Mm -hmm. the, the private interests of you know the food pyramid and starting to really properly educate not even just educate but just Get, get rid of that private interest and rebuild a food system that we know in our hearts like we know is a better way right
1: Amen. Andrea, do you want to um jump in i My questions are all kind of philosophical, and I know you've got some practical questions as well
0: yeah we should have we should have warned you, Aaron Allison only asks loaded and intense.
2: Questions. <laughs> well, I think now, you know, that's they're right up my alley. <laughs> <laughs> I <like>
0: those discussions. <laughs> Aaron, what you were saying, okay. I told you, I went to far- four farms yesterday. I was, we were doing one of our big yearly hauls of food that we bring back and we preserve and um, basically squirrel away for the winter and when I went out to the first farm, we've gone out there and picked a few times before. And this year it was, it was awful. I mean, there was almost virtually no tomatoes. The The peppers were hardly producing. It was really bad. And you, you mentioned Aaron, right before we started recording that you heard about the heat wave that mm-hmm. we had out here. And the farmer was telling me the week they had put all the starts out, then there was a massive heat wave out here. And Um, it basically everybody in the Valley suffered and, and the tomatoes, everything did pretty horrible. Um, and he's the potatoes, literally like potatoes actually cooked in the ground when they went to dig the potatoes and they pulled them up. They were mush. Like they, they broke in your hand, like a tomato already cooked. And, um, he was talking about how it's been getting harder and harder every year to farm out there in the Yakima Valley, Washington state. And when you talk about it infiltrating politics, you know, and how it has in kind of a negative way, there's another problem we have out here, which is there's one guy who's buying up tons of farmland. He's the largest farmland owner in the United States now. And, but what he's buying up this farmer's neighbor's land and um, not farming on it. It's just vacant land. It's not even mm-hmm. being worked but what's worse is he's buying up the land around the waterways and then not allowing access to the waterways. Mm. Um, it's, it's a desert out there. So without the water, it's, it's pretty bad. And they haven't had rain in a couple months. And so I asked the farmer <clears throat> because he talked about how politically it's the, the squeeze around the farmer's necks, you know, he, we talked about some specific bills and things that have been passed. It's it getting, it's very, very hard for them to, to find workers. It's very hard to, keep workers, pay workers, everything's getting more challenging for the farms and it's all kind of turning in favor of huge mega, you know, factory farm operations. Yeah. And so I asked him if you could say one thing to the people of America, what would you say? And he said, I was holding a box of bell peppers. He said, <clears throat> he said, I would say, if I could tell anybody one thing, I would say, start learning how to grow your own food now because you think people are mad when they run out of toilet paper, wait till they run out of food. Mm. And he said, wait until that bell pepper in your hand costs $12 next year. <laughs> he was, wow. he, he said almost everybody he knows who farms has less left, left the state. And he said, you watch when the small farms go, every time a small farm goes, you're one step closer to having to rely on the government for your food because mm. all that is left is farms that are subsidized and supported and run Largely by the government. And that's an easy thing for somebody to control. So when we got to the next farm, which was a, a longtime dairyman who is getting close to retiring, I asked him the same question. I said, If you could say one thing, what would you say? And I didn't tell him what the other farmer said yet. You know, I just asked him, What would you say? And he stopped, he's standing in his kitchen. He was, getting, he was getting out jars for me to take home some raw colostrum. And he stopped and he goes, if I could say one thing, I would say, when you're driving down the street, you stop at Ace Hardware, you stop at the farm stand, because if you don't, they are not going to be there anymore. And you won't have the choice anymore. You think you have the choice to choose where you shop now, but the choice is going to disappear. And I was like, wow, they both said the same thing. And then you're saying the same thing and Alison is saying the same thing and, and I'm saying the same thing. I think where we shop, you have really, really connected to the crux of the matter here is that we need to choose where we are shopping now or we really won't have the option in the future. Yeah. And I, and the story of the guy,
2: go on. Sorry. Uh, I was just going to say, If for nothing else, out of solidarity for those that do not have the choice, let us choose Mm -hmm. wisely. And and us being those that have that choice still. Yeah. Sorry, Alison.
1: That's okay. I was just going to say the story of the um, butcher that you talked about in Piedmont. I bet the relationship that you had with him and that any of the kids that met had with him was one that was full and rich and fed you and fed your soul as well. And the relationship that Andrea had going and meeting those farmers compared to you know going into a faceless big shop with mm-hmm. lights, yeah. electric lights and freezers. Cool. It's something that we're built as humans for that connection. And so not only the food but the, the community and the people is such a, a huge part of it, Andrea. And you going and visiting those farms just illustrates it so clearly. Cool. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. Well absolutely. And you know, it wasn't that long ago when most of us had this direct relationship with the food that we were growing ourselves. And if it Mm -hmm. wasn't us, it was our neighbor. Right. Yep. What was the percentage percentage uh, pre-World War II was something like 45 or 55%. uh, I want to say it was 45% of uh, all the food produced in the States was on, on small family farms. Yeah. Um, And so right now it's like this last this last line, if we don't build this connection, we are going to have a complete disconnect. Uh, between our source of food and us and we know what goes wrong when we outsource right and so much of so much of what I'm trying to to bring is just this like light switch of you know of this desire to connect just one step closer to our food system and that very last line I was going to say the last line of defense but the very last you know piece of it is our own kitchens Mm -hmm. right because Mm -hmm. so many of Mm -hmm. us are still outsourcing the takeout to where we're we're not even cooking our own food right so many of us you know my wife uh my at the time we were just dating we were looking for an apartment in manhattan and she was visiting apartments at the time this was 10 years ago that didn't even have an oven or a stovetop wow wow and she would go (laughs) in and be like where's the oven She's like, oh, you know, it's New York. Like, most people eat out, right? That's just like a little example. It's like, whoa. So, so yes. And, and let me just say for our kids, what an opportunity if we are connecting, right? How fun is it? Is it easy necessarily? No. Look, it, I every Wednesday we have our rituals. My wife actually went this morning to one farmer's market where we like to get our fish and certain. Um, certain produce that this woman, Ophelia, that I just love, and she loves Rafa, and she loves Caroline. If it's me, if if it's me that goes, she says, "Give a kiss to your wife." They know us now, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I know Ophelia and her husband, and I trust the food that she produces. And there's an energetic exchange of of what can only be called love between us, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. And and then on Wednesdays, which uh, today's Wednesday, we're going. Is today Wednesday? No. Where are we? Jesus. Today's Tuesday. Tomorrow's Wednesday. Sorry, tomorrow's Wednesday. I'm like, wait a minute. I have to go to the market, guys. <laughs> uh, tomorrow's Wednesday. And I'm actually looking, I'm looking kind of in the direction of where the market is that we go on Wednesdays. And that's where we, we have my staple stalls of, and it's awesome. It's a really cool market that has green awnings for all of the, the practicing organic um, stalls and then blue awnings for those that aren't. And so I just kind of circle the green awnings and I've got my um, lady that does kombucha and has amazing veggies. There's this amazing, uh, guy that, that, um, uh, sprouts all his, uh, grains. He, he does only gluten-free. And so it's sourdough gluten-free bread. He uses wow. teff flour. He uses a lot of mm. buckwheat. Incredible. The only thing he hasn't done yet, uh, is nixtamalize his, uh, his corn for his <laughs> bread. Um, and then, um, another woman that is, she's from France. Her husband makes incredible sourdough bread. That's organic. And she makes ginger beer and they've become, you know, our closest friends here. And our son plays with, mm-hmm. with their son. And it's like our whole fabric is, re- is literally revolving around the networks that we're making around basically these markets and where we're getting our food. Mm-hmm. And my God, like what joy that we can, that, that, that this presents as, uh, as an opportunity. Right. Um, and, and what, what's the, you know what what's one of the byproducts of this is we get to eat some of the most delicious food on the planet yeah. on the planet right <laughs> and then i know we can get into that oh but it's more expensive oh but you know you have a car and can drive there and yes those are all layers of complication right but look this is what i'm voting for this is what i believe in and i really really hope that my decisions to do this on a, on a, a daily and weekly basis are going to impact you know the um, the masses so i think it's worth it i think it's worth it
0: absolutely i don't quite know where to go
1: from there andrew help me up.
0: well i i do agree with aaron i actually when you said that aaron i was remembering when we moved and we've moved a number of times with the military and I was just thinking back and everywhere we moved, I got, I had to find food. So I had to find, I always think in my head, my categories, I had to find meat, have to find milk, I had to find fruit and vegetables. That's kind of the, the, the big ones. And I, every place we moved, I'm thinking back, I'm still friends, very good friends, very close friends, mm-hmm. even went into business with some of these people, Talked to them every day. And I met them all through food, all of them. Yeah. All of them through going to the farmer's market, talking to the farmer and then saying, Hey, can I volunteer on the farm or can I work on the farm? Can I work share on the farm? And I mean, wow. All my friends came from food.
2: (laughs) Yeah. 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 And I want to step back because I want to mention another friend of mine before we even met anyone here. uh, I, we were connecting on Facebook actually, and I don't spend a lot of time on Facebook. I'm more on Instagram with, with this little project. Um, uh, but I was connecting over this you know, this group of uh, Algarve, I forget what the community was, and this woman wrote back, and we were kind of going back and resonating, she was from Oregon and she was moving to the area, we were just like really hitting off around food and where we're going to get our grass-fed beef when we go here, and um, and that one too, we hadn't even moved here yet, and we were, kind of, we were already setting up our kind of like supply and like our go-to places, mm-hmm. And what, you know, lo and behold, we become amazing friends with them and and our son's best friends with their two girls. And again, it's just another example. It's like, it's the value. Like, And I really think coming, coming back full picture, it's if we can place value on getting food right first. And when I say right, I mean getting food right for us to where we can get our rituals down, to we get... We can build our skill level in the kitchen to where everything is just, for the most part, just working with less friction. I really think that life can kind of grow from there, and you can kind of span out <laughs> from there. But if we don't have food right, right, what what do we have, right? Or we're just kind of facing an uphill battle. I think if we're doing that.
0: Not and I, I again I exhort the audience to go check out Aaron's <laughs> Instagram because nothing on your Instagram says me restriction you know it yeah in in fact it sometimes I think people are afraid I know I was certainly before I started really going into this world that oh no if I'm gonna eat uh, as you say we'll call it right then I don't have as many options but all I see is the further you go in here the more options you have really yeah
2: yep yes and the more you realize whoa I was missing out. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's a, like, I and you can know. go on forever. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's a lifetime. It's, it's food. It's, it's a lifetime of discovery. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, like I know we were going to talk about, I don't know if we have time, like the Tef, uh, the uh, injera that I made a couple weeks ago. Yes. My God, what an opportunity. Right. <sighs> and if you want before, we, I, I do want to leave people with some kind of action items that have worked for, for uh, me. Yeah I, for like, yeah. I wanted to ask yeah. you, I wanted to ask you. some um, um, okay. Don't, yes, don't
0: close this. Don't close us down yet, Aaron. Uh, no, I'm, I got all day. Um, I want, okay. Great. <laughs> um, I have a question for you on the practical side. I like to think that I am the one with the easy questions, <laughs> but I know they always, everything ends up being philosophical when your whole life is, you know, when your whole life is aligned and in tune with how you, how you believe and how you live. So this Mm. is my question for you. Um, I have had such a great opportunity to work with a number of chefs and get to work in their kitchens and even go in and teach chefs how to make sauerkraut and Mm. things like that. And, And nothing really just tickles me more than getting to go into a, commercial kitchen. And these kitchens that I've gone into are all farms that, you know, source directly out or farms, restaurants that source directly out of farms and have really high quality, high standards and things like that. So it's really the best of the best examples for me to get to see. But every time I'm in those kitchens, I'm just blown away by all these little, I don't know what to call it, tips and tricks that these chefs have that is just habitual things I'll say something like as as simple as I don't know every single thing that goes in the fridge gets like labeled and dated and sometimes yeah. time stamped, right? Yep. Like oh, I just love stuff like that, so
1: <laughs>
0: uh, <laughs> oh, I goodness. I just eat that stuff up. So this is my question for you: for yep. you're a professional chef, you also work in your home kitchen. We're all in our home kitchens. What is something that you bring home from the commercial kitchen to your home kitchen? maybe some skills or tips that you think could translate over to us.
2: Yeah. Okay. So let me first say, this is an interesting thing because I want this This might come across as, Oh, he's a restaurant chef or he came from that world. Cooking at home must be so easy. Right. And, and this is an, this is actually speaks to the point of environment, right? When I put myself in the home kitchen, I don't necessarily bring all the habits that I had in, a, in, in the restaurant world. Right. So I'm not labeling everything with nice blue tape and even (laughs) cutting, cutting the sides of that tape. So it's, you know, not torn off, but it's cut off and it's flat. Um, (laughs) That's
0: so funny because I've been told, I've been told anybody who rips my tape, (laughs) what will happen to them?
2: (laughs) Yes. Yes. Admittedly. I sometimes rip.
0: Um, Oh, you don't never.
2: (laughs) So, but, but, if you can take this home, there there are two main points I think to uh, a really special and well run kitchen, right? And I, yeah. I hope well, I what I know this for. is what this is what I and this is what we were working towards um, in almost every kitchen that I was a part of. And you know, a great kitchen has great systems. Okay, mm. what, what I mean by systems, it just it literally just means like, and we all deal with this in our day to day. It's like how well do you organize your email or like your to do list or you know, your small business or whatever it is. Right. And so it's like at the, the last restaurant that I worked at in Concord, mass, such a special place. And these people are dear to my heart still. And by the way, they've moved, they were, we were organic practicing and, and they're moving on to full, full on regenerative practices. Of their farm. Wow. At the, good for them. Farm. And so we had this like, you know, very, very in-depth operation of organic farm uh, cooking school at the farm catering business which that was our original you know that those were our projects and then we opened a restaurant and a brewery you know inside that restaurant on top of all that so we're catering we're doing weddings we've got this restaurant that's open from you know breakfast lunch dinner like none of that would survive without you know having really well organized lists on a clipboard, everyone knows where that clipboard is, right? <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what time you have to order by for your next day, and and you know we're ordering from ourselves, basically our own farm, and the other farms because when we're you know we're sourcing from other farms, you know we're just calling those farms up. It's not all this like one you know uh, Cisco distributor that we would be ordering from. We were the anti that, right? Mm-hmm. So we were only as good as 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 we were organized, and on a home level. That can be so simple as just having like a good sheet. And one of the things that I'm I'm, that people will get in this course that I'm offering, that will be coming out this fall, is my go-to shopping list for the U.S. So you can even, and I'm actually going to do a U.S. and an EU uh, version of it, um, as I'm kind of putting together that here in the EU, where people can kind of work off of that and have my favorite go-tos. Um, so it's, it could be as, as easy as that, right? But taking a step back, it's setting an intention for the week. And this is the other piece of it. It's the systems and the intention, right? And so if you can set an intention for your meals that week, right? Or, you know, leading into your, your shopping, then you have got like some, some feel and some heart and some energy, you know, underneath those decisions of what you're going to buy, what you're going to cook how you're gonna kind of organize your mm-hmm. week to get, to get all those things right, right? And this is something that my wife and I have started to do. And one of the big reasons why we do that is because sometimes there's friction over what we're eating because she's a woman. She, is, she has different needs than I do. She's also just another human being, right? So we have different wants and desires and needs and those things shift monthly, depending on the time of the month, depending on the season. For all of us. And of course, bring in the layer of having a four-year-old. Right. So we've we started to weekly on Sundays, get together and talk about our intentions for the week, not just for, you know, food, but for our whole kind of household, right? Yeah. But we do it around food. And I ask her, you know, how are you feeling about what we're eating? Would you like more of something uh, this week? And we just openly talk about it. And then that informs, you know, the coming week. All right, so that's kind of big picture stuff, and on the on the small level, once you've kind of gotten that figured out, and that can just take five minutes. It's like we're going to eat more. Let's say you're a vegan. Like I want to eat more black beans this week. I want to start to kind of I've have I've been craving Mexican, you know. So let's make a batch of sofrito and maybe freeze it, or you're know, right. all those little things, right? It's just once you get the intention set, and once you kind of talk about what you want to eat, then you can start to plan ahead. Okay, and. So from there, then you can, if it's in your consciousness and you've got your list, and maybe it is your list in your planner of what you want to eat each day. And if you look at it, it's Wednesday and tomorrow you've got, let's just say, going back to those black beans. It's like, okay, get those black beans on to soak. Because I've learned from Andrea or Allison or Aaron or Weston A. Price that I, I need to soak those to make them less toxic and more bioavailable, right? And so I'm going I'm to plan ahead and get those soaking. And the next day in the morning when I'm making my coffee, Um, I'm going to put those on to cook and let them simmer away. Right. Maybe with a little bit of kombu. (laughs) So Mm, like, it's just, it's just like, that's it. And when food becomes, I don't want to necessarily say the center of your world, but at least a primary focus, then it all can start to take in place, but uh, uh, come into place. And, and no matter if you're, if you're at a place where like, what are you talking about? Soaking your beans, can you just, wherever you are, right. If you can just, take a breath again. I know I talk about breath a lot and take a step towards learning a little bit. Right. And maybe that's investing in, you know, something that I'm offering or just listening to this amazing podcast. Right. And just starting to absorb. Um, and, and you can keep it simple at the beginning and just like, remember, like you could just get some ground meat at the store and cook it with just salt. How good does that taste just out of a pan before you've added mm. anything else? Really good. Right. And like, <laughs> And, uh, and grass-fed ground beef, right, or lamb, you know, you can get as cheap as $6 a pound, right? And, you know, price per, you know, nutrient, that, I'm sorry, has got to be better than whatever you can get at McDonald's, right? And once yeah. you stop buying, like, Coke and Doritos, like, you have much more money to spend on the really good stuff that will sustain you. So, um, are there other little things in terms of organization that could serve or does that kind of set the the scene a little bit?
0: I think the principle is what I was going for. And I really like that. The, the great kitchen has great systems. And I'm thinking about, you know, you said there you were basically ordering from yourself at that restaurant. And Mm. that's in a way, that's how it is out here. As I, after doing that Patreon episode with Lexi about meal planning, I've, been working harder on actually, basically, I guess, doing what you said, sitting down and setting the intention, what are we going to eat for the week? And then it does kind of feel like I have an order list because I have to go out to the freezers. I have to go out to the garage where all the jars are stored and I kind of bring in the things that we'll need the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of feels like ordering or shopping, except the the shop is in the garage. <laughs> <laughs> and I like the idea of that. Like, I really, really like that.
2: Yeah. The other thing that I'll add is when you do that, you can start to kind of plan your activities around these things. So like, right, right. Like my son is with me at the market. But for example, a couple of weeks ago, we went blueberry picking, right? And like, one, how fun is it just to be outside and <laughs> to go and do this, right? But is there a better gift to your kids than to go like blueberry picking, Yeah, right? yeah. To, to get them holding a bucket, you know, moving around and and seeing where this this one example of, you know, foods that they eat, where it comes from. And my God, like, is there a better way to spend our time? One, one thing I jotted down, I jotted, I want to uh, share that I jotted down because this is another layer that I know comes up with people is that I just don't have the time, right? Mm. And I looked up out of curiosity how much the average American spends on their phone.
0: Oh, no, no.
2: (laughs) And I saw different results, right? And spending on your phone, okay. uh, If you're listening to a podcast, this podcast, which I think is nourishing, I know that takes up part of this time and you could be cooking during it, but it's around five hours and and that's an average. So sometimes higher, right? Yeah. So, I really think it's such a myth that we don't have the time. And I think if we can and start to (laughs) play with that concept, like it's like, well, how can we flip that and be like, where's where are there ways that we can have really fun time with our kids? And I know it's not, you know, a, a brand new idea to go apple picking or berry picking with our kids, but I also think there's power in starting to, you know, take them along in some of the harder ones to engage with, like where you might get your chickens locally um, and start to have some of those real conversations that I think that they're important. We don't tiptoe around necessarily, even for our young kids.
0: You know, Lexi said something, Aaron, that I think you will love this. I think she was quoting another mom who had taught her this. And the mom said, by the time a child is seven, they should be contributing or they can be contributing more to the household than they're taking out. Hmm. And that doesn't start by training the child when they're seven, it starts when they're young. And I've seen your son in the kitchen with you working, you know, and he's, you know, halfway to the seven year mark, right? Like he will very much be contributing in a number of ways. And I've, Mm. I've noticed, you know, Lexi's son who I think is, I think he's maybe eight. Um, you know, he can make the sourdough bread for the family and, um, you know, have children being that, that doesn't mean that she just started training him yesterday. You know, she's Mm. allows her children to be in the kitchen with her. And if anybody, um, is on the Patreon, go over and listen to that interview with her. It was really fun, but I love the way, seeing these moms, especially moms with a lot of kids, because then it becomes vital. You really can't run a house on your own. When you have 10 people in the house, you need your team around you. And that I think is a great way for kids to, um, yeah, just participate in life and feel like they're a necessary member of the fabric and um,
1: yeah. And also have some fun. I think oh, that's, yeah. that's been so really much important um, with
0: yeah. Gabriel
1: that I've made these things fun. And I see that in your videos that, that yeah. you've got on Instagram because yeah. you're, just, you're having so much fun when you're doing it. And you know, I'm really excited that if you can, if you can share the injera with us on the Patreon yeah. to, to make it as fun, I'm really
2: looking forward to Totally, totally. So I
0: could be
1: entertained
0: as well. Alison, when, when Tiffany was here and we did all those peaches, you know, we had the buckets lined up on the deck of water, like soapy water, and then rinse, 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 mm-hmm. and then a dry bucket. And I told Tiffany, I said, well, this is, you know, don't kids go to Montessori classes and just move items from yeah. bucket to bucket. Yeah. You know what I mean? But this is actual work that's needed. The whole family, all, both our families will have peaches all winter and the kids contributed to that.
2: Yeah, yeah. Can I, I, I have goosebumps because I wanted to just mention a, an example of a story of my childhood that I think has, holds such meaning for me. Yes. And I love I love what you're bringing up in terms of the, the child contributing not from a sense of like, you know, that they need to be doing it, right? But as an opportunity for them to engage and, and, and feel a sense of ownership and pride over contributing to the day-to-day, right? And, and I, I have this uh, memory that, uh, of my childhood when, you know, I always navigated towards the kitchen projects, whether it was my dad who, shout out to my dad, He's the guy that, he always did the turkey for, for Thanksgiving. He's always the one <laughs> nice. cooking the meat. It's a total stereotypical, like he would grill meat, right? But he was really into uh, stir frying and he loved to make beef and broccoli. Mm. And um, side note on him, like he's the one that taught me how to like tempt meat. Like he he knew, he's like, you know, if it feels this way, you're probably around medium. He just knew those things. My dad who wow. grew up in Chelsea, Mass, like and. um, I grew up working in like different Jewish delis and just being around food. And, but but the story started with my mom and my mom would make um, matzo ball soup for us very often on Friday nights, especially in the, in the colder, colder months. And it was just one of those things that started where I would help my mom pick the chicken. So she would boil the chicken and then pull it out and then just pick the meat that was tender. And I can't, I get, I get goosebumps thinking about those moments because you know I grew up with a family of uh, seven or I have four brothers and sisters. And there weren't a ton of moments when we were, we were alone and had one-on-one time with, with one of our parents, right? There was just always another sibling around. There's always so many of us. For some reason, I remember these different moments of being alone with my mom and having her full attention and picking this chicken and mm. feeling, feeling honored and proud that i was helping her my mom who was a a english teacher and then a school principal and the mom of five my god and but also just feeling uh, and looking back what a beautiful sense of presence you know just being in the kitchen with my mom and also like that that tattoo of taste of that chicken and the smell of that chicken soup which is why I kind of, I, I wanted to do that chicken soup for the kids on Fridays in Piemonte because that was such a part of my story. And, you know, these little moments, like these are the gifts that we've been, we can be giving to ourselves and to our kids and to our families and that we can be passing along to our, to, to future generations. Because we really are at a crossroads, I think, as a global civilization and multiple different um, cultures where we are, we're starting to see a a multi-generational gap now of, Mm -hmm. of this lack of these, of these traditions, but at the same time, you can sense, right. You know, and maybe we're a testament to that, that there's this yearning and this, um, this resolve to hold on and to build new and, and to kind of, um, maybe write what, what, um, has definitely kind of just kind of gone astray with with so many of our food systems. So I so do give us, yeah, your, give
1: us your practical takeaways of that then, because you said you had some things you wanted to leave us with and mm. with that kind of motivation, it would be wonderful to hear
2: what, what's important. Well, if you can hold on to that idea of, of, you know, my mother and I in the kitchen, right. And maybe close your eyes and think about a moment that, you've experienced in your own life that is similar with your parent or maybe you're a parent yourself with your child now, and think about what it feels like, right? Like, what does it feel like to be present in the act of cooking, in the act of cooking for someone or being on the receiving end of a loving meal from someone else? And I just ask you, like, is that worth fighting for? In your life? Is that worth preserving in your life? And is that worth spreading, you know, to, to other families and to your friends and to communities and to, or to, your, to your community? And is that, does that look like a better world than, you know, the system where we're outsourcing and we're spraying a bunch of chemicals on, on massive monocrops that are destroying our ecosystem, you know, and and seemingly sounding very dark in the KFCs of the world, right? I really think if we can hone in and just place the value on the former, we can build, and I really think we are building such a beautiful existence and, and one that is free of the chronic disease and... Uh, the, this reliance on, you know, different medications just to get us through every day, that is not normal, right? I think mm-hmm. that our birthright can be this, like, vibrant health and this vibrant, really joyous existence, and it can be with having the most amazing, delicious food for ourselves and, um, and for the people around us. So maybe that's it. That's maybe it's just that simple value shift.
1: That's absolutely. Oh, wow. Andrea, um, we're getting close to time. Is there anything else that you want to ask? Aaron?
0: Yeah, I, I, we missed this in the beginning. So I want to ask Aaron, what's the last thing you yeah. ate before you got on I here? I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't have breakfast, so I just want to hear what you had.
2: <laughs> it's, well, I did. I, <laughs> Me too. It's uh, 4.15. The last thing I ate was uh, roasted mackerel. Ooh, oh, um, yum. S- um, so this morning I actually, uh, so I'm a coffee drinker, but I'm very particular about my coffee. Um, I drink like really good kind of hipster, like hipster. Orga- <laughs> organic, like <laughs> organic coffee from, you know, single origin farms across the world. And I just love coffee. Um, and I was out of it and just for the fun of it, I thought, Hey, let's with my son, let's go out and have a coffee and we'll get fish at the fish market. And, um, so I picked up some mackerel. And I just want to share like at this local fish market and this is off of a boat that I can, I may have been looking at one of those boats this morning when I woke up. Um, mm. it, it's, it was 250 a kilo for these small mackerel. And I, I prefer the small fish um, just for the, the kind of low heavy metal toxicity mm. in, the, in the smaller, younger fish. So I'll, we eat a lot of sardines, which are in season now and, and small mackerel um, or shellfish. But um, So I picked those up and I filleted them. And one of my favorite things to do is kind of a Japanese approach of salting and um, kind of marinating in a little bit of mirin, like true true mirin, not like the, I think it's called Aji mirin, which is like glucose syrup. And um, that's really not what you're looking for. Um, Or just honestly, like uh, you could do a dash of um, like a rice vinegar if you wanted to, just a little bit, but the mirin is more sweet, not vinegary. Um, and I just had that marinated for like 20 minutes. So what I do is while I'm filleting the mackerel and degutting it, um, I, I have a, sh- basically a, a big sheet pan and I put a layer of salt and mirin and I'll just keep on adding the fillets. And when I have one layer, I'll, I'll add a little bit of mirin and salt and I'll just kind of layer on top of that if I have more. And by the time I'm done filleting all the fish, you know, basically I'm, I'm ready to cook and I just basically roast those in a very hot oven skin side up so the skin gets a little bit crispy and honestly that's all I had actually uh before going on here just very often I'll just eat kind of clean like that um
1: thank you for remembering that question Andrew that was really nice to
2: listen to yeah uh no it wasn't I'm hungry (laughs) I wanted to say so the price guess what the price of per kilo that fish was in the market
0: Oh, yes. You said.
2: Um, did I tell you? Did I say the price? You did. you did. Oh, all right. I did right already. Yeah. yeah. So 250 a kilo. And for and our, you... for the American friends, that's, you know, a kilo is 2.2 pounds, right? So yeah, one, 125. Yeah. Like,
0: that's ridiculous. <laughs> and didn't you show, was it mackerel? You showed us how to fillet on Instagram.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's in there. That's yeah. in there. And I, I do, that is going to be part of, I think, season two when we get into. Uh, more fish cookery I do in the first um, series uh, work on um, cooking shrimp which is one of our go-to's wild shrimp I think is such an underused and underappreciated mm. um, healthy and fast just nutrient bomb yeah. um, and so malleable and you can just take it anywhere that I do I do cover that but I do want people kind of feeling comfortable with with taking home their whole fish if they have, if they have asked. I think it's a big one.
1: I mean, a lot of people that I've spoken
2: to just don't feel confident with fish. mm. Yeah, totally. Totally.
0: And where can people find you? I was just going to ask that we'll link it, Mm -hmm. but tell us where we can find you. Yeah.
2: Uh, Well, I'm not going to give you my address in the Algarve, right?
0: now.
2: (laughs) If you are are locally, you can hit me up. Um, Actually, I might be doing some cooking in person for some retreats and friends of mine that are doing some cool things. Um,
0: Yeah, actually say physically. I don't think we said on the...
2: Yeah, I'm in the the south of Portugal in the Algarve, uh, close to the southwest uh, tip in in a place called Lagos. Um really, really cool. Yeah, no, it's it's awesome. I think we're gonna hang out here for a while. But um online, I'm on Instagram at Chef Aaron Goldstein, that's Aaron A R A N Goldstein. Or my new website, which is coming together, is called cookandlive.co no M. Um okay. Cook and Cookandlive.co. And that will be a place where you can um eventually sign up for this course and sign up for a newsletter that I'm going to be starting, restarting up in a couple of weeks. And um, yeah, we can go from there. I do also have a YouTube channel um, that's also Chef Aaron Goldstein or Cook and Live, where I have some old instructional videos when I first dove into um, to being behind camera a couple of years ago. And I really think those are super valuable uh, if people are looking to get started with some instruction. Great. Yeah,
1: I've seen some of them. They are super valuable. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to share before we say goodbye?
2: Karen? Uh, I mean, I would love to flip this and, and turn the camera on you guys for the next hour and talk to you. <laughs> I, I dream, I, you know, you guys have been so inspiring to me because I, I dream of, of having my own uh, podcast as well, because as you can tell, it's not just food that I'm so passionate oh. about. It's really all the different kind of tentacles of, of human health but also just the kind of human experience um spanning out from food but um i just do want to say that i'm grateful to both of you i've loved listening um to your work and engaging with you guys i find such inspiration in that and um yeah just sending you guys a lot of love and i'm really really happy to have had this this time with you and i can't wait to do it again
0: oh thank you you. i can't wait Same back to you for sure and Allison, awesome. we're, well, we're going to see him yeah. back on the, in the Patreon feed soon, right? There's yeah. a special feed. Yeah, hopefully with special. some teff in Jira.
2: Yeah, let's uh, do it. Yes, I'm it. ready gonna, for that. Are we going to do a, a video version of that? or Yeah, yeah. I, I'd nice. like to. That's awesome. Yeah, let's do it. I think that'll be fun.
1: Wonderful. Well, thank you ever so much for your time, Aaron.
2: Thank you, guys.
1: And um, we'll speak to you soon. Okay. Ciao. Bye. Bye.
0: Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to continue the conversation. Come find us on Instagram, Andrea's at Farm and Hearth and Allison's at ancestral underscore kitchen. Until next time, we both wish you much fun exploration and satisfaction in and out of the kitchen.